Esteemed hockey fans, it is with deepest pride and greatest pleasure that we welcome you tonight to the pond. We invite you to relax and take your seat as the city of Anaheim, the National Hockey League, and the Mighty Ducks celebrate a new era in sports entertainment. Welcome to Detour to Neverland, where you are the author of your own Disney story. There's a lot of satisfaction in developing ideas into realities. And you can find magic in your everyday life. If you do what you really want to do, you feel like you're playing. How can you write your first chapter today? Dreams are how we figure out where we want to go. Life is how we get there. I'm headed this way. We're your hosts, Brendan and Catherine. Welcome back to Detour to Neverland. Today is episode number 264. That monstrosity that you heard at the beginning of this episode was the inaugural game of the Mighty Ducks of Anaheim in 1993. Just one of the few topics that we're going to discuss in today's episode. Before we move on, I do want to mention our travel agent sponsor for today's episode, Hannah Little with Creating Magic Vacations. If you're looking to go to Disney at any time, head over to littlebitofdisney.com. There you'll find a short form. You can fill it out, tell her what you want to do, where you want to go, all of the details that you know about your trip, and she will be sure to hook you up and help you get your trip planned. Remember, you don't have to pay for this. It's completely free, which is everybody's favorite price, and your trip is going to be easier and better because of it. It's really just a win-win. So again, that's littlebitofdisney.com. We'll also put the link to everything in the show notes and tell her Detour to Neverland sent you. So March 31st is the 32nd anniversary of the Walt Disney Company purchasing the Anaheim Angels. We thought this accompanied with the new release of the new series on Disney Plus of the resurgence of the Mighty Ducks. This would be a great opportunity to discuss a topic that we haven't really seen discussed too much within the community And that is this relationship and the business endeavors between the Walt Disney Company and sports. And it is a wild, twisting, turning story. It basically has the 90s written all over it, which is something that we love. And yes, that rendition that you heard at the very beginning of this was a version of Be Our Guest that was changed to bring hockey into the city of Anaheim. Well, I was going to say, we could, you could just stop listening right now, and I think you would get the gist of Disney's relationship with sports is quite interesting and definitely not the same relationship with sports that, you know, other venues would have, you know. You're not usually going to go to a sporting event and hear be our guest in, I don't know, in any capacity. So Lumiere was on the ice for this event And they had ice dancers. They unveiled the mascot at this time. 
They had a rock ballad that they played at one point as well. It's basically a fever dream. Definitely go watch that out. Just search for the 1993 inaugural ceremony for the Anaheim Ducks. That's just one of the topics that we're going to discuss today. We're going to discuss the California and Los Angeles Angels as well. But all of this starts with Walt. And I think you kind of have to understand Walt's relationship with sports in order to really understand how the company got into this very unique and strange position in the 90s. Above all, what we know about Walt is that he was a fan of America's favorite pastime, which is baseball. And we did look everywhere, mostly Brendan. He was very into finding this answer. We don't know for sure who Walt was a fan of. It's not documented. We can't really find it. Obviously, he had to have had a favorite team. I mean, come on. You would think so. And so the teams that would come to mind would be, since he spent so much of his childhood in Marshalline, Missouri, and in Kansas City, and then some in Chicago, both of his birthplace, and then he moved there during his late teenage years as well, the two teams that come to mind would be the St. Louis Cardinals or the Chicago Cubs. Now, us, being Cardinals (laughs) fans, we like to believe that Walt was a Cardinals fan as well. But you never know who he was a fan of. Some of you might be saying, well, could it be the Kansas City Royals? Kansas City Royals came much later in time in 1969. So Walt would have been, he would have been gone, gone at that point. But by the time baseball and sports were even coming to Kansas City, he would have been in California before they were even having those discussions. But he could have been a Cubs fan. Would have been a tough pill for me to swallow. I know. Luckily, that's not documented. I know we have some Cubs fans who listen. I it's it's tough, tough for me, <laughs> really struggling to get through that. But all of this leads up into the really the only documented allegiance that he had was to the team that his company would eventually own, and that is the California Angels at the time, eventually the Los Angeles Angels, eventually the Los Angeles Angels of Anaheim, Anaheim Angels. If you're familiar with baseball, they've had many different names. But it's all rooted in this friendship that he had with Gene Autry. The same Gene Autry who's the cowboy, the singer, the songwriter, the actor, westerner. That Gene Autry was the the first owner of the Angels. And because he and Walt were friends, this was late in Walt's life, he would go sometimes to see the Angels play. Now, this time they were in Los Angeles for a period of years. They were sharing a stadium with the Los Angeles Dodgers. But that's basically what you need to know is that it's really poetic how this came around where his friendship with Gene came back around to his company eventually buying it from Gene. But we're going to get to that a little bit later. Yeah, absolutely. So more than anything, we know that Walt loved using baseball as a medium for storytelling. So it set the backdrop for some different stories that he would want to tell. Um, We know that he was an American patriot, and there's nothing more American than, of course, baseball. So we know that pretty early in his career, in the 1930s, when they had the studio on Hyperion Drive in Los Angeles, there was a field nearby where he and the other employees would go and play friendly pickup games of baseball. And D23 actually has some pictures of Walt hitting. Got a good form. (laughs) The man could smack it. And when they moved to Burbank in 1940 to the studio in the lot that we know now, 
he actually made it a point that they built an athletic field for the employees. And he even had these special Disney baseball jerseys made. And they look, you know, they look legitimate. They're with their cotton. I'm sure they were hot as Hades. And they were what they would go out and wear when they're playing these pickup games. And it's not, I didn't see any pictures of Walt wearing one, but supposedly he did sometimes go out there and play with them. But you have to remember in 19. 19- 40s, he's, you know, he's in his 40s at that point and leading into the 50s, getting a little bit old for baseball, but especially smoking so much. But who knows? But that is seriously so cool. I mean, because you think about today, like workplaces, offices, churches, you know, they all have like rec league teams and everything. And it's just kind of funny, again, to think about the Walt Disney Company and think, oh, my God, they had a baseball team that Walt was part of or that he started or encouraged or whatever it might be. But that's just fun to think about. Well, and yeah, talk about being on the edge of like fringe benefits for working in corporate America. You probably wouldn't find too many multi-million dollar companies who are offering, you know, a baseball field on their (laughs) campus for you to go play in your downtime. Yeah. And so I think it just further solidifies is that, yeah, I'm sure he watched football. I'm sure he maybe watched other things as well, but it's baseball was his thing. And you can also see that translated over to the screen. So we all know the goofy shorts that you've seen of how to... Uh, how to f- throw a football or something, or how play to throw football. football. How to fish, the perfect cast. And there's one that is how to play baseball as well from 1942. And then later in 1946... He did Casey at the bat as well. So you can tell more than anything, baseball was this connection to America that he used to tell some of his stories. And he also had some really great quotes about baseball as well that I wanted to share with you. And it's a quote that I had never heard of before. He said, baseball is a great teacher of an important secret of living, the giving and taking in the group the development of qualities and behavior that will stand us in good steed through life in pursuit of both personal and professional. So it's really cool that he used baseball as a metaphor or as a comparison to these overarching, you know, how you have to work with people and how you have to use these tools to reach the goals that you want to reach in your personal and professional life. I mean, and ultimately what we can see from this is that sports were always part of the company. You know, it was something that Walt enjoyed, you know, as a pastime, he was able to make that connection between sports or in this case, baseball. And like you just said, the workplace and the community that could be created there. And, you know, they used sporting events a lot of times as marketing platforms, which makes sense. I mean, we still see that today all the time with lots of different forms of advertisements and things like that. But then later, what we're about to get into is that sports also became business opportunities. And we know that, you know, I don't want to say Walt, but we know that the Disney company never passes up a good business opportunity. So this leads us into the story of the Mighty Ducks of Anaheim. So this is over 30 years after the death of Walt, But I do think it was important to understand how sports were important 
to Walter. Or he at least understood how it was ingrained into the fabric of his audience more than anything. And so to understand how this convergence of chaos that the Mighty Ducks of Anaheim became to be, we need to understand the state of hockey and the state of the Walt Disney Company in the early 90s. So in the early 90s, hockey was booming in the U.S. It had already, of course, been solidified that it was you know, a pastime in parts of the U.S., you know, looking at New York and Boston and places like that, and Detroit and Chicago, and then, of course, in Canada as well, in Montreal and Toronto and Ottawa, they had this deep hockey history. But when you looked into the U.S., it was very, you know, centered around these cold-weathered areas where the kids grew up playing hockey, and it was only available to places like Minnesota and Boston and Chicago, where that was a sport that kids played. But you come to the 90s, and it's the fastest sport growing year over year as far as putting new fans in the seats and on the TV watching this sport. And the idea of secondary markets outside of the Bostons and the New Yorks and the Philadelphias started to become really alluring to the National Hockey League. Now, of course, we love that, being fans of the Predators, of that this time period opened the door for places like Nashville to eventually get a team. Well, I was going to say the same thing. I was going to say, you know, like this is important to anyone who is a fan of hockey outside of, you know, those main markets. You think about like the Tampa Bay Lightning. I mean, that would not have been possible without this expansion. And then, of course, the Anaheim Ducks as well, you know, moving them into these areas of the country where, you know, Florida obviously doesn't see snow, you know, what business do they have being here would be the argument that a lot of people would have. But clearly there is one, which is super cool. So there's a couple of significant events that take place to lead to hockey kind of really inserting itself into these non-traditional markets. One big thing is, it quote unquote, the trade. And so this was a trade that sent Wayne Gretzky to the Los Angeles Kings. Wayne Gretzky, if you're not familiar the greatest hockey player of all time by everybody's standards. (laughs) He comes to Los Angeles. Like that is unheard of, of a player of that caliber coming somewhere. Previously, he had played in New York. He had played in Edmonton. These very traditional, you know, deep rooted hockey places. And then he comes to the place of palm trees. Like it's a wild time. That happens in the late 80s. And then the NHL introduces the San Jose Sharks and the Tampa Bay Lightning, which are both almost immediate successes, and they catch on in their cities at a very, very rapid pace. I mean, we also saw the same thing in um, Las Vegas with the Knights just recently, where it just kind of exploded, and they were awesome from the very beginning, which is also unheard of. So you get this from the NHL side. On Disney's side, what is going on? Of course, Michael Eisner is the CEO at this time. They have this movie that's relatively low budget. It's a sports movie, which Disney has done for years and years. Sports movies were always a kind of a dependable thing that they could lean back on. 
they're not going to lose money. They're not going to kill it, but they like to make them. And it, it, they have an audience that expects that out of them. So they make this movie called The Mighty Ducks. The critics don't like it. They make fun <laughs> of it. They think it is not a good representation of youth hockey. And it's not very well received, well received by the critics. It gets into mainly young boys get to watch this in overnight elementary and middle schools and high schools. Kids are doing the flying V in their schools or in their backyards playing roller hockey or real hockey, or maybe they're not even playing hockey at all. They're just doing a flying V. And then they're also going quack, 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 quack. And it becomes like an overnight sensation. And so if you view this from Michael Eisner's perspective, the NHL is booming and it's in his city where he lives with his sons. And to understand him, he lived in New York. He grew up in New York. He was a New York Rangers fan living there. He hits gold with a movie about youth hockey. Both of his sons play hockey in Southern California and start playing on the travel teams because they brought that over from their New York roots. And he has, and he was friends with the owner of the Los Angeles Kings, who's making money hand over fist because he had Wayne Gretzky playing for him. And so he was actually approached a couple times before the Mighty Ducks movie hit about getting into this NHL business. And seeing the box office hit that he had was what convinced him, I need in on this. Which is so funny because it's almost like you know, it was like a 90s viral sensation and people just like loved it, hang, like hung on to it. Clearly, since they just redid it, you know, in the first episode of this new series just came out, what was it like on Friday? You know, it's something that people still have deep rooted ties to and a love for. And it's funny to just kind of watch all of this play out. I do have to think, though, since you talked about his history and his love for hockey, just a personal love. I mean, do you think it was some somewhat like self, I don't know what the right word is. Like a childhood dream. Yeah. I mean, he's, he's Michael Eisner. He has the opportunity and the funds really to do these things. I mean, it has to be some sort of sports fans dream, you know, to just have something like this almost fall into your lap. Yeah, and from and, and he's sitting there, he's sitting in he's sitting in Burbank, but he spends a lot of time in Anaheim as well. And he's looking around the city of Anaheim. Hey, didn't this city just build a brand new stadium that's empty and they're trying to recruit a professional team? So Anaheim actually built what is now the Honda Center previously known as The Pond. Which was way cooler. Yeah, The Pond was a pretty cool name <laughs> for uh, for a hockey ring. I mean, they adopted that when the Ducks came. But Well, well yeah. Uh, they, ha- they originally built it to try to draw an NBA team. And they were unsuccessful in that endeavor. So if you're familiar with any sort of professional sports expansion, the biggest thing that these leagues look for is... Do you have support from your city and do you have a stadium already? Because we don't want to wait on you to build a stadium. Eisner had both of those. 
He's got the support of the city because Anaheim wants to continue bringing in more people and to prove that they're not just a place for theme parks. Although, let's be real, they totally are. And then they have this stadium that is available, and they, of course, quickly reach a deal that, hey, if you get a hockey team to come here, this is your home. And so for a relatively low cost of $50 million, which to the Walt Disney Company is not much, even in the 90s, that is not much at all for what they're doing. They approach the NHL, they put in their application for an expansion team, and of course, they get it. In 1993. So it's really crazy that this is how they get it. But you also have to understand, from Eisner's perspective, this is a marketing machine. And that's how it was viewed by the Walt Disney Company, was the Mighty Ducks are going to be a franchise with us. And it, of course, eventually became that. We had D2, we had D3, we had the animated series as well. And so it was a, you know, they were feeding each other almost, where you get to see the Mighty Ducks in real life. And you get to see, you know, world-class athletes don the same colors that Charlie Conway wore in the movies. And now they're wearing them out on the ice. And so go see our movies, buy the merchandise, come to Anaheim and watch a game. And it was, it seemed like it, they had struck gold. Well, it is quite genius because if you think about like a new sports team, you know, you kind of have to pull people away from the team that they already love, which can be hard to do. You know, you're trying to sway them to root for this new team. But in the way that this came about, because so many kids were already fans of the Mighty Ducks, I mean, it was like an automatic fan base. And it's like, you know, these kids asked to go to a game, their parents will take them they want the jersey, they want the plush, you know, they want this, that, or whatever else because that's what they saw in the movie. And now, like you said, they're seeing it in real life. And, I mean, it's just like a money, I mean, a money engine, I guess. And the same, and they view it the same way of, hey, little Billy wants to drive in from the middle of Texas to watch the Mighty Ducks. Hey, you're already in Anaheim. Come to Disneyland. It's right here. <laughs> Why wouldn't you? Make a weekend out of it. Yep. So they viewed it as that this is a giant marketing tool, both for the parks, both for our movies, and everything feeds back into itself. And not even to mention, they owned a new, they just bought a TV station in Los Angeles that they set up to start broadcasting their games. So they had the full setup of everything that you would need to be wildly successful. It was just like put in their lap. They they made it possible, but they, like you said, they had all the pieces. But you also have to understand that using a sports team as a marketing mechanism was completely unheard of. There's no case studies on this. There's no you know mention of this when you go to marketing school. This was almost completely thought of from internally in the Walt Disney Company. And I think Eisner is credited with a lot of it of coming up with this idea, which when you really think about it is insane. Like, can you imagine the first time he pitched this to someone is like, we have a fictional youth hockey team 
in our movies. Let's make a real one. You know, how can how do you pitch that to the board of directors? He must have been very passionate and he must have been able to prove somehow or predict or make some sort of super cool graph to show everything that he was planning. I mean, everything that we just laid out with how it could all be connected with each other. He must have been able to foresee that because I feel like unless he would have been able to lay out all those pieces, like you're right. How would you get approval for this? I mean, because even though we said $50 million might not have been much, like you have to assume like there's something else that they could have done with that money besides like, oh, hey, let's let Eisner just make a hockey team as like a hobby. You know, like I wonder if that's what people thought. Like this is his hobby. I have a little bit of a personal story of how, you know, I'm, I, in 1993, I was one year old, <laughs> but Paul Correa, and I don't want to get too many into specifics of players and, you know, too many things like that, because I think we'll lose a lot of people. But Paul Correa was the face of the Mighty Ducks of Anaheim for, he was their first draft pick. He was their guy for the longest time. And he actually was on screen in D2. They got him on set and he had a couple of lines. He, I think he was like a commentator role is what he played in D2. Later in Paul Correa's career, he comes and plays for the Nashville Predators. So I'm probably 9, 10, or 11 years old by the time he makes it to the Predators. And... I can't explain my excitement of knowing that somebody that was in the Mighty Ducks movies was playing for my favorite team and I was going to get to see him in real life. Was and your mind it, just blown? My mind was blown. But it was even the same way when the Ducks would come visit and play in Nashville. It was every every boy is there just with the widest eyes of, oh my God, it's the Mighty Ducks. How do we feel now when the Ducks come to Nashville? Well, since then, (laughs) the Predators and the Ducks have become heated rivals. Quite a few playoff series in a row have uh, really rubbed us the wrong way. Taken the luster off of the Ducks coming to town. Now it's a little bit more, but Disney doesn't own them anymore. So So it's acceptable. We can feel that way. And they're no longer the Mighty Ducks. But. You would think maybe if they're just being viewed as a marketing machine that the Ducks would not have performed very well on the ice, which was not entirely true. Which is quite interesting. Now, they did not win a Stanley Cup during the time that Disney owned them. But just in their fourth year of existence, they made it into the playoffs. And then in their 10th year of existence, in 2003, they made it to the Stanley Cup Finals. Which, again, I can tell you, as a Predators fan and a fan of an expansion team, you know, we got to take the Vegas Knights out of this because they're anom- they're the anomaly. It took the Predators from 1998 to 2017 to make the finals. It's almost 20 years to do it. And the Ducks did it in 10, which was pretty impressive. So they made it to the finals in 2003. 2004 is when the NHL lockout happens. So the Players Association and the league cannot come to an agreement on the labor cost, and they are not able to play that full season, or they don't play anything at all. So that's when this whole experiment starts to unravel. After the, they lose in 2003, 
Paul Correa and Timu Solani, who were their best two players, both leave the team. Timu actually left a year earlier, but at the end of 2003, they lose both of the faces of their franchise. They're bad in the 2003-2004 season. The year after that, in 2004-2005, they don't play at all. And so at this point, I think Disney kind of saw the writing on the wall of that. The franchise, the, the movies are over. They've all been successful up until D3. They've been successful. Maybe this is our exit point. And that's what they did. So it's interesting of how this is timed because they sold the team in 2005 for $75 million. So just on paper, it's a $25 million profit. However, reportedly, they lost money pretty much the entire time that they were running the team. Which seems surprising with like the merchandise and everything. You know, obviously, a sports team to be able to play all the pay all the players and the coaches and upkeep the arena and everything. I'm sure it's very expensive, but I definitely would have expected them to make money. And they did early on in 1994 and in 1995. They led the entire NHL in merchandise sales because every little boy and little girl who had watched the movies wanted this real life hockey sweater or they wanted the plush doll or, you know, they wanted all of these things that they are now getting to see from the movie screen and in real life. And I think it just kind of slowly tapered off and they started to lose money. They almost won the finals in 2003 and they almost won the Stanley cup, but they lost to the devils. Then their players start leaving and it was kind of their time to exit because Eisner steps down. They sell them the same year. Do you think that's a coincidence that you think that's one of like Iger's first moves was get rid of this thing? It almost seems like it just had to be, you know, it, I don't think there's any coincidence there. I definitely think there's a correlation because like we mentioned earlier, this was almost like Eisner's like thing, you know, like he was the hockey fan. This was his idea. He pitched it, got it done. All of the above. So when he was gone, you know, there probably wasn't a single other person as passionate about it as him. I could be wrong, but I have to imagine that he was the one like pushing this and hyping it up and like the cheerleader for this. A little bit of salt in the wound. So the team is bought from them. The couple that buys them, they're one of their first acts is to drop mighty from their name. So they just become the Anaheim Ducks. They change their color scheme. So they no longer are a replica of the Mighty Ducks that we saw on the TV. And then they win the Stanley Cup in 2007. And I mean, so you said their star players left. Again, we don't need to get into like the thick of it, but was it just like a major overhaul, you think, that did it? Or just like a new boost of energy? They were not necessarily supposed to win it in 2007. I mean, they were very much like a team that got hot at the right time mm-hmm. that won it. So it's not like they had like the star-studded lineup up and down that was just a juggernaut. It was right place, right time, lightning in a bottle. Did they have the most heart, Brendan? I, I, I assume <laughs> they did. But 
that pretty much wraps up the story of the Mighty Ducks of Anaheim. But again, that inaugural game, you have to go watch that, that opening. opening ceremony. You get Lumiere. You get this rendition of Be Our Guest. They had this other song that they played called Rock the Pond, which was like a hype, like it was like a ballad almost. I mean, it was all quite clever and very much Disney. You know, if you were there that opening night and you knew that this was a team owned by Disney, you probably expected something like this. So they definitely delivered on the Disney aspect of everything, at least in that very first song, which to me is where it counts. So part two of this episode is about the Anaheim Angels. And a lot of this, well, all of this happens concurrently within that same time period that we just talked about. So they owned the Ducks from 1993 to 2005. And the Angels all happens within that time period. So they own them for a much shorter time period. So this brings us back to Gene Autry. So we talked about at the beginning, he and Walt were friends and... Of course, they probably would have known each other professionally for a long time, but then later in Walt's life is when their friendship really, you know, they spending started spending more time together. And so he was the original owner of the Angels in 1961. Previously, the Angels were a minor league team, and it was a minor league franchise. And it was actually the owner of the Dodgers, if you're not familiar, they're the other team in Los Angeles. Very historic franchise. He actually owned the rights to the Angels. So Gene Autry had to go to the Dodgers, to the team he was about to be directly competing with, even though they're in different leagues, and buy this from him. And I think the number that he bought was for $350,000, which in 1961 is a pretty hefty a sum of, of cash. And we don't necessarily need to talk about the early history of the Angels, but essentially what you would need to know is they weren't great. They weren't awful every year. They were awful some years, <laughs> but they weren't great. They were just a team that could never really get over the hump to get to the World Series or to win anything really significant. They won a couple of division titles, but they never really got to the World Series. But when... Gene got the team in the 60s. They they bounced around quite a bit. So they played in some different stadiums. And at one point, they shared a stadium with the Dodgers. And it was funny because it's known as Dodger Stadium. And it's pretty much always been known as Dodger Stadium. That's where the Dodgers play. But when the Angels played there, same building, they would call it Chavez Ravine which is like an alternate name for it. Like Dodgers fans will sometimes call it Chavez Ravine, but it's just interesting that the Angels, like obviously that would be weird to see live, you know, California Angels playing tonight from Dodger Stadium. Oh, well, yeah. I mean, they needed their own identity, so it makes sense. But Walt would attend a lot of these games, and sometimes he would even sit in Gene Autry's owner suite. Sometimes he would sit by himself, and he didn't attend a ton of games. But if you you know remember that, that Walt always loved baseball. And now one of his buddies owns a team, so it would make sense that he would be attracted to the Angels. Of course, he had no idea that his company, 30 years later, would become owners of it. So Autry held them 
held them the entire time for 36 years up until 1995 when Disney first made a 25% investment into the company. At this time, they become managing owners, meaning they are making the day-to-day decisions on personnel and how much money to put into it, contracts, and things like that. They did that for a few years, and they worked out the kinks to make a final deal in 1999 where they bought the entire team for $150 million. So much more than the Mighty Ducks. Well, not much. Three times more. Three times more. Six years later after this, obviously the market for baseball is much higher than the market for hockey. But now all these teams, you know, they're getting close to the billion dollar range. I mean, sports have exploded. But $150 million, it's not completely unreasonable. Um, But Gene Autry did pass away shortly after this and the you know Disney's in charge now and one of the first things that they do is they invested a ton of money into the Angels and into their stadium the wheels were already set in motion when Gene Autry was the owner but they were in the process of moving from Los Angeles to Anaheim specifically and so they got this stadium I called it Anaheim Stadium very originally. <laughs> and Disney put, it, it was about $118 million investment into the relocation and into the stadium. In exchange, what they got was the city of Anaheim pitched in $30 million as well in exchange for Anaheim to be used both in the team name and in the stadium name. So that is how they became the Anaheim Angels, for that period of time. But of course, since then, Anaheim has been dropped. Like you mentioned at the very beginning, they've gone through lots of names, more than I can or want to keep up with. But now they're just the Los Angeles Angels again. And there's not too many like juicy details, and there's not too many like crazy things that happen like the Ducks. Like That's a very weird and wild story that like you, you almost wouldn't believe. That happened. But the question still poses is why was Eisner interested in this? Like he maybe had a relationship with Gene Autry, but it probably certainly wasn't to the level that Walt did. Mm-hmm. Obviously, Michael Eisner did not meet Walt Disney. And so it's it's just a question of why did he do this? And you kind of get two different answers. The official answer says, oh, well, market research said that this was a good investment and this would bring people, you know, they saw the opportunity of them moving from Los Angeles to Anaheim and they wanted a piece of this because it would bring more people to their city, which ironically is exactly what my family did. So my family growing up, we would spend our summers and, uh, spring breaks, going on trips around the country to try to see as many baseball stadiums as we could. So we did a Southern California trip where we went to San Diego to see the Padres. We went to Los Angeles to see the Dodgers. And then we went to Anaheim to see the Angels. And the same thing we mentioned before, we said, well, we're in Anaheim. What else is in Anaheim? We have to go to Disneyland. It just makes sense. So we actually stayed at the Paradise Pier Hotel 
in 2002, the year that they won the World Series, and we drove over to Anaheim Stadium while staying on Disneyland property. I did not know that. Yep. And we've been to Paradise Pier before together. And you never mentioned that. We had a theme park view. Um, that was the first year of Disney to California Adventure as well. I don't remember any of it. I honestly think we maybe spent a couple hours in there. Like, not much at all. Well, your main priority would have been baseball. Our main priority was baseball and then Disneyland. I mean. Yeah. I mean, that was the goal was to go to Disneyland. So that's kind of one answer is that it's marketing research. It You know, the data led them to this decision that they thought it was a good investment. The other answer that you kind of hear, and, you know, if you know a little bit about Eisner, I think this one makes a little bit of sense of that just happened a couple years before that he and Walt Disney Company released a a remake of the film Angels in the Outfield in 1994 which is, again, kind of similar to Mighty Ducks. It did better than they expected it to. Now, I personally didn't know Angels in the Outfield was a remake. I thought that 1994 version was the original one, which I'm now looking at your face. I don't think you've ever seen it, have you? No. Okay. No. Not many sports movies were played in your house, were they? No, unless it involved princesses or singing animated characters. We probably didn't watch it. Or dogs. Always dogs, yeah. You, you probably saw all the Air Buds. Uh, it's still, that's still a sports movie. It's a little sketchy. Okay. And so if you're familiar with Angels in the Outfield, the team that is focused in that 1994 remake is the California Angels. So one could deduce <laughs> that he had the exact same thinking that he did with the Mighty Ducks of that, hey, I've got this movie property. This thing exists in real life. They can benefit each other. Why wouldn't I just do it? So I don't know. Do you buy into that or do you think it's just it was just a good investment? I mean, I have to buy into both of those theories because I can see again, it is an investment. So, you know, he would even if his real intent was just like I want to connect the two franchises, he would still have to have some sort of research, I feel like to get it done. You know, again, how do you just get $150 million plus $118 million to put into the stadium? You know, now those numbers are really adding up. How do you get that much money by just saying, oh, well, we made a movie. It, it makes sense, right? We, we made the movie. Like, I don't think, even though Disney might have a lot of money, I don't know if anyone would just like green light that. You know, so they did have more success than the Ducks. They did win a World Series in 2002, but word again, word started to come out is that they were losing a ton of money. And so, reportedly, during Disney's time owning it from 1999 fully until 2002, very short period of time, they lost over a hundred million dollars in the franchise. I mean, do you think it's just because they put so much into it initially? I mean, is that why? Because why would anyone own sports teams then? Well, a lot of them make a ton of money. 
But but wouldn't you think that both of these that are owned by Disney would make just bukus of money? I don't know the exact answers. I mean, I can theorize all day. I mean, Anaheim is going to get a fraction, and it doesn't have any of the story of the competing teams in Los Angeles. The Angels are never, ever going to out-earn the Dodgers, or even the Padres, for that matter, I don't think, because they are storied, you know, much deeper franchises, even though they've been around since the 60s. But even then, the Dodgers have been around before that, and, you know, they were in Brooklyn before, and they just have a lot more story. If you look at hockey, the Los Angeles Kings, a very storied franchise, even though they're in Los Angeles, but they play in the Staples Center, for goodness sake. You know, one of the premier places on the planet to play a sporting event. And I just think it's a tough sell, especially with how bad traffic has got in Anaheim. You know, on that interstate that connects Anaheim and L.A., who's going to drive out there? Not me. I did, us driving to LAX almost gave us heart palpitations. <laughs> Yeah, that was that's its own story. Now, again, that's just my opinion. That's just my theory. I'm sure there's many, many other things at work here. And, look, I mean, we're fans of the Predators. The Predators are never going to out-earn many teams in the league just because it's a smaller market. It doesn't have the historical backing that someone else would, but they still do pretty well for themselves. We used to. They're, <laughs> they're turning it around. But um, when they sold it, they sold it for $183 million. So a little bit of a profit there. They didn't make up all their losses, of course. Supposedly, they tried to strike it while the iron was hot. And right after they won the World Series, they put it on the market. And they got a lowball offer of $140 million. So that's how people were valuing it from the outside. Even after they had just won a World Series. Yeah. And so they waited one more year and it went to $183 million where they decided to let it go. Oof. And of course, we never got... Well, we did get an Angels in the Outfield too, I think. I think that exists. I don't... I honestly could not tell you. So that kind of leads us to just ESPN in general. You know, if we're thinking about Disney and sports... Past Walt's love for baseball, the Anaheim Ducks or the Mighty Ducks, whatever. Both of them have went through some name changes. Okay. That's understandable. Both of these name changes that I can't keep up with, we land on ESPN, which is almost like the next wave of their marketing plans, if we want to think about it that way. So ESPN debuted on September 7th in 1979. And they struggled right out of the gate, pretty much. In the early years, um, so in 1980, one year after they had launched, they needed money. Anheuser-Busch invested $1 million. And then again, in 1981, they invested $5 million with the idea that people who were watching sports were probably also partaking and drinking their beverages which is probably pretty accurate. It rings true. (laughs) I can attest. That is true. And, you know, 
eventually that ended up being a good investment. Their vice president um, said that it was the best investment that Anheuser-Busch had ever made because it ended up in 1993, he was listed as like the sixth most powerful figure in sports since he was one of those early investors. And really when I hear that, I mentioned all those things because it it's an opportunity to make money pretty much. And like we said earlier, Disney's not going to pass up opportunities to invest or to take advantage of new opportunities to acquire things that look like they're going to be successful. And to me, that's kind of how the door was opened. It's just that there was a potential to make some money. Which Disney's not against. They are very pro making money. So Disney enters into the scene in around the mid 1995 time period where they decided that they were going to purchase Capital Cities and ABC for $19 billion. And that's important because ESPN was owned by both of those companies jointly. So again, they were struggling. They needed people to invest in them. And those were the companies, two of the companies that were investors. And that's when Walt Disney acquired 80% of ESPN. The next sort of domino to fall in this story is that they used to have ESPN and ABC Sports basically as two separate entities. And they would both broadcast on their own channel. And obviously at that point, it would seem pretty repetitive. They're covering the same type of content. And so there's really no reason to have them both existing at the same time. So that's when they started this process of merging ESPN and ABC Sports and basically moving the ABC Sports operations over to ESPN to make that the main hub for all of their sports content. Even though technically ESPN and ABC are separate, they are their own entities, but they are combining content. Ultimately, what this means is that in 2000, so after owning ESPN for a little while, things are looking very good, which is kind of a turn when we think about Walt Disney and sports. Because like we just mentioned, both of their other two ventures were not super profitable. In 2000, it looks like ESPN is going to be quite profitable. Um, Eisner was praised and he praised ESPN as being a class of its own. And, you know, the worldwide leader in sports, like all of those things that you typically think about when you think ESPN. And they contributed $2.6 billion in revenue and $824 824 million in operating income. ESPN was worth about 20 billion or 25% of Disney's market value, which is pretty crazy. It is insane to think about that. It grew to that space and, and foreshadowing. I mean, it's it is so minuscule now. I mean, they were reaching 82 million households. You know, they're reaching more audiences and probably new audiences. You know, this was something different. For Disney, you know, they weren't movies or cartoons, animated features, you know, now they were reaching new audiences and that was profitable to Disney. Um, Ultimately, in February in 2008, it said that ESPN was probably worth more than 40% of Disney's entire value, which was just based on, you know, cash flow in the industry. 
I, you know, this may be TMI, but personally, as a Disney shareholder, my gosh, I wish they had sold it right then. ESPN. Yeah. <laughs> when sell it, it was off, this high. Get rid of it. Sell high and figure something else out because, woo, this is a much different story nowadays. Yeah. I mean, and it was just crazy. So this was kind of like the big boom. But of course, this happened in 2008. Like Brennan just mentioned, it's not necessarily the same anymore with different streaming services. But at this time, you know, they were doing better than Fox Sports. They were doing better than um, CNN. Um, and something that I read, they were doing like four times better than MTV. You know, they were just outshining everyone. And I don't know what exactly it was that made it happen. But this is kind of where when you think about Walt Disney and sports, this is truly where they struck gold. This is where they did the best. And it's interesting because then it bled over into something that we love so much. And obviously a lot of you are probably familiar with. Then it starts to bleed over into the parks. And specifically, it bleeds into Disneyland a little bit with ESPN Zone there, which they did have for a time period, correct? I honest, I don't know. I really thought they did. And then when it came out of my mouth, now I'm thinking that they... Now you're second guessing it. <laughs> but they do have ESPN Zone at the boardwalk which we can have a discussion on that in a second if you like. But then the biggest investment into the Walt Disney World Resort became the ESPN Wide World of Sports Complex. And to me, this speaks volumes because this is the athletic complex that's still here in Walt Disney World. They built it for $100 million. It's 220 acres. It has nine different venues. And it was previously just wetlands. Which, again, you know, it's Florida. It makes sense. But, I mean, that number, $100 million they put into building a sports complex. You know, they must have seen, again, some serious potential for this. It was opened in March 1997. And it was opened with what, you know, if we were to bring this full circle, what makes the most sense? A baseball game. So it opened with an exhibition baseball game between the Atlanta Braves and the Cincinnati Reds. Who won? Oh, God. <laughs> you didn't look that up? No. Come on. Do you know? No. Oh. <laughs> I don't know. I, I hope it ended in a tie in like true Disney no. fashion. Because those spring training games, they do allow those to end in a tie. Really? I would like to think that Walt would want a winner. Who do you think he would have cheered for? Hopefully not the Reds. That's just the Cardinals fan and you talking. <laughs> I don't know. He probably would have just been happy to be there and see it. I'm sure for him, that would probably be like another, just like not a dream come true, but something cool, you know, to know that he has these sports complexes. People from all over the country are traveling here. And then eventually it became the home for the Atlanta Braves spring training. So they were there for 22 years. It ended in 2019 when they built a new facility still in Florida, just not at Disney. Why you would ever leave Disney? I don't know. I think Disney's fees for it were really high. Okay. Well, I guess that's why you would leave. So I have two thoughts, uh, actually three thoughts. One of them's really sweet. I want to start with that one. Okay. If you just think about the story and, you know, all of this conversation that we've had today, 
you know, this is probably the most historical episode that we've ever had because this has just been, you know, the retelling of information. But I do think it's interesting, you know, just because we like sports and, and to tell these stories that maybe aren't as familiar with Disney fans. But anyway, you think about from the time at the studio at the Hyperion where they're playing baseball in a field to a major league baseball team is playing an exhibition game at the Walt Disney World Resort. I mean, that's I mean, that's poetic. It's really cool to think about that this seed of baseball, which is personally my favorite sport, <laughs> so it means a lot to me, really came all the way through and and followed 80, 90 years of the company to get to this point where they did it. Now for my not-so-nice points. Okay. Um, isn't it kind of a shame that you would presume now the biggest moneymaker for this thing is the cheerleading and dance competitions? Oh, my goodness. I should have known that you would bring this up. I So in a previous life, I did competition cheerleading, and me and Brendan were actually dating at the time. And this is probably his least favorite thing about dating with me being with me ever is having to sit through those competitions. If any of you do that, you know, your daughters or family members, or you did it with your significant others growing up, um, it's, it ta- <laughs> really takes a toll on your mental health. Um, I really, Stop. I really consider myself a warrior for making it through <laughs> it. It's really like a badge of honor that you just have to carry with you. For all time, if you were able to survive going to competition cheerleading events without having a mental breakdown. I honestly can't take you seriously right now. But that just goes to show, because I, I can't even talk about that. If It goes to show that the wide world of sports complex has a lot of different uses. And that is a big one. I mean, they hold those competitions from like... January until like April or May because there are so many different categories and you think about the hotels, the all the all store all oh gosh all star sports hotels they rent them to these athletes because they're so close by and they're cheap, um, which is good for you know families who are traveling for sports because it adds up. It's very expensive, so. I mean, it is interesting to think that it's not just baseball. You know, they have tennis fields. At one point, I don't know if they actually built it, but I read about like a a huge bowling facility that was going to be like the biggest bowling facility in the United States. I don't know if it's there or not. But, you know, like the Run Disney Expos and everything are held there. Um, And obviously they proved that they could host the entire NBA as well. So it is just like a plethora of, you know, opportunity here for them. Again, a moneymaker. What, what is your kind of hope for the future? Obviously, it seems very underutilized right now. Like, it's, it's, do you think when they really built it the first time that they were expecting to just host these competition events? Like, they host, like, the Pop Warner football as well. They've had the Pro Bowl skills competition there in the past, which I think is a really cool thing that they do. And then they, when it was in 
Orlando, they would go play it at the Camping World Stadium, closer to downtown. Um, so if the Pro Bowl comes back, I would assume they're coming back to Orlando mm-hmm. as well. But you would have to think they want something more for it. Like I've always said a minor league baseball team would be silly not to play there. I mean, you can call them the Disney dopies for a like here. Like people would go. Like yeah. people used to go to those brave spring training games and you'd get, you know, Disney always talks about expanding to, uh, you know, to reach new audiences. I mean, that's, that's the people who don't have any interest in going to magic kingdom, but like my family used to do that. We'd come to Florida and we'd drive all around this state going to spring training games. And we'd always go to a Braves game because it's like, why wouldn't you? It's, it's one of the nicest facilities. It's at Disney. You know, you're going to get exceptional service. So it's really great. So I don't know. I wish there was more for the public to experience there and not just have it be, hey, Pop Warner's in town or the cheerleading event is in town or dance or competition. Yeah. I I wish there was just a little bit more. Something more permanent. Because it's beautiful. When we were there for the Run Disney Expo, it is a beautiful facility. It has so much potential. Well, I mean, and they have over the years, they have put money into it um, and updating it, you know, giving them big, you know, I don't know if Jumbotron would be the right word, but like big electronic um, screens and scoreboards and everything like that. So it's not like they just built it and then it's old and like run down. It is very well maintained and it's clean. And again, nine different complexes, you know, the place is huge. So even if they did have like a permanent you know, like you said, a, a baseball team or something, you know, they could very easily still host these other competitions, you know, if they wanted multiple forms of revenue. So I don't know. Maybe you'll have to pitch it someday. I'll be the manager okay. of the baseball team. And the Disney Dopies, is that what we're going with? Uh, I'll think on it. Other names would be like the Lake Buena Vista um, Alligators. I could go with that or, um, mm-hmm. or I don't know. The possibilities are limitless. Correct. If anybody else has any good ideas, please let me know. But that about wraps it up. You know, like we said, we've pretty much come full circle from our original conversation. But I think the last thing that we have to do since Disney, we mentioned, has lots of sports movies. We did want to highlight some of our favorite sports movies. We both ranked our top three, and I guess we both have an honorable mention as well. I have two. Okay. What's your number three? Oh, gosh. I'm pulling it up right now. You go first. My number three is Miracle, the hockey movie. Fitting. About the run of the American team to the Olympic gold cup, gold medal, whatever it is. Okay. Herb Brooks. So we mentioned this just briefly. I did not watch a lot of movies growing up that were not, you know, like Lion King, like your typical animated Disney movies. So I'm at an extreme disadvantage, much to Brendan's dismay here. So my list is a little off the wall, but I did look at a list of Disney sports movies, and I can confirm that these were on the list. So before you give me any grief, I'm just throwing that out there. Okay. 
My number three pick. I can't even say it with a straight face. My number three pick is Herbie Fully Loaded. With How Lindsay is that Lohan. a sports it movie? It is a car race. I promise NASCAR. you, if Cars is on your list, I'm going to flip this table. Get ready. Oh, my God. <laughs> but, uh, I mean, growing up, you grew up in the era of, like, Lindsay Lohan before she went crazy. You know, Freaky Friday, all those things that she was in. Loved her. Have to pick this one. We watch it quite frequently in my house. Number two for me. If this is a movie that you haven't seen, we're going to watch it tonight. I don't care what time it is. It's 9.34 p.m. in case anyone is wondering. The Rookie with Dennis Quaid. Nope. Not ringing any bells. Uh, uh, Tell me what it's about. What's it about? It's about a man who thinks his baseball career is over. He's older. And his family is pushing him that he shouldn't give up on this dream of baseball. So he goes and tries out. And becomes a rookie at a very old age, but he's a superstar and he's awesome. No, nope, I kind of seen it. I kind of butchered that plot, but but that's the gist of it. Yeah, I remember watching one with you once with Brad Pitt. What was that? Moneyball. Was that Disney? No. Oh, okay, but I did. I did watch that movie. What team is that based off of? Do you remember? No. The Oakland A's. It's pretty forgettable. Gosh, they have an elephant as their mascot. I'm like a child. I'm here for the mascots. Uh, my number two pick, this will make you flip a table. <laughs> I went with Get Your Head in the Game, High School Musical. Oh, my God. That is not a sports movie. It has basketball. You could say that about anything. There's always a scene where somebody is playing a sport. No, basketball is a central figure. Of the movie. He's a basketball star. The only reason I'll allow it is because of Zac Efron. Troy Bolton. We're big Zac Efron fans in this house. We are. Everyone should be. It's a great guy. What's your number one pick, Brendan? Cool Runnings. I should have known you were going to pick that. I love that movie. I It makes my stomach hurt. I laugh so hard at Cool Runnings. <laughs> It is absolutely fantastic. And I we'll get to our honorable mentions in a second. But you're number one. I I I'm on the edge of my seat. You can't wait for this. <laughs> it's cars. Oh my god. <laughs> oh my god. It's, how could you not pick cars? I need help. <laughs> I am not well. So I'll go ahead and do my honorable mentions. <laughs> yeah, please take the topic <laughs> off of Cars as your favorite sports movie. Why didn't you pick Chow? Why didn't you pick Cars Two? Such a wonderful because film. Everybody knows that the original is the best, and I hope people listening agree. So, do you consider like um, what are those movies? Fast and the Furious is that a sports movie? You know, I've never seen those, Brennan. Unless I, I, I've never seen it, so I can't tell you. I don't know. Are they racing? Is there a trophy involved? Is the piston cup there? <laughs> exactly. Okay. Honorable mentions? I, I did have to throw in one. Remember the Titans. That is a very good movie. That was my honorable mention, but I'll explain to you why it didn't make my list after you're done. 
So if I were to make a more serious list, I would definitely put that on my list because it is a very good movie. Um, and it was one of those that they played, you know, like in our high school all the time, you know, as like one of the approve, approved movies that they could play. So I know a lot of it. Um, but then one that came to mind right before we started recording, one that I watched a lot, I think it came out in 2002. <laughs> Uh, snow dogs. It's about dog sled racing. Okay. Yeah. yeah this is, this is going good, so well. My it's honor, a good one. My honorable mentions were the mighty ducks. Love the mighty ducks. Um, air bud. I also really wanted to dip into the decom category cause they have a lot of sports movies. It's like luck of the Irish could be in there. I didn't mention that because we talked about it just the other day when we did um, our luck episode. But like Brink would work. I mean, based on your categories, if anybody plays a sport, then that works. So a goofy movie apparently is a sports movie. Ice Princess would have been one. What is Ice Princess? It was a movie about ice skating. Don't remember that one. Okay, real quick. Reason for Remember the Titans not being on there. It is an excellent movie. It is a tearjerker. It is everything you could ever want out of a movie. However, our friends over at Monorail Radio ruined it for me. I never knew this. I I wish I could live the rest of my life living in the dark. Well, are you going to ruin it for everybody else now? Yes. It's not historically accurate, like, in the least bit. And that is a tough pill for me to swallow. So, So you're saying, so it's based off of a true story. That's what they claim. But it's not? It did not happen that way at all so it and, didn't but, have like a feel-good ending kind of thing or? no i think it did have a feel-good ending the the issue is that it that's i think that's my real issue with it is that it is a very remarkable and wonderful story that needs to be told they just didn't tell it accurately oh okay so yeah it's not like it's it's a bad story like it it's a it's obviously they're saying it didn't a story do it that justice. Is, yeah, a story that's passed down for generations in Virginia. And, you know, it is just, a lot of people remember this happening, but they didn't accurately tell it. Mm. Other ones that come to mind are Invincible. I'm very surprised you didn't watch that with your dad being a Philadelphia a sports Eagles fan. Eagles fan. I'm sure he's watched it, but he knows better than to try to force us to watch a sports movie. And I think that might be it. So this is a little bit different episode for you guys today. Um, wanted to take a little bit more of a historical route, and we want to try to hit these anniversaries and things as they come up. So, so since the Mighty Ducks series came out this week, and it was the anniversary of the Angels being purchased by Disney, we thought it was very appropriate to put this topic together. I had a blast researching this and telling it. This was definitely probably more up my alley than yours. I don't know next time if you want to research princesses or something more appropriate <laughs> in, in your wheelhouse, but uh, I had fun. I had been too. So before we sign off, I want to mention again, if you're planning a Disney trip or in that early process and stage of doing that, definitely reach out to Hannah Little, the sponsor of this episode. Her information to get that free quote completely free to use her services is down in the show notes below or go to littlebitofdisney.com 
And of course, if you enjoyed the show or got any sort of information or entertainment out of this, then leaving us an iTunes review is absolutely the best way to help us out. And we truly appreciate it and makes our day. So thank you so much for listening. Hope you have a wonderful start to your week and we will chat with you on Thursday. Thank you for listening to Detour to Neverland. Make sure you subscribe and leave us an iTunes review if you enjoyed the show. Between episodes, you can find us on Instagram at Detour to Neverland or visit DetourToNeverland.com. We appreciate you letting us be part of your day. See you real soon.